with this particular program on TV. Who do you think you are? It's quite popular. I think it's now currently in its seventh series, where celebrities research their bloodline and discover, for good or for ill, who their ancestors were. For example, J.K. Rowling, famous, of course, as the author um, of many films, the, uh, of many books, the Harry Potter series, for example, traced her roots back to find that she, in fact, comes from a long line of single mothers. Her great-grandmother Lizzie, her great-great-grandmother Salome, and her great-great-great-grandmother Christine, all of them raised their children without their fathers, and she was quite amazed by that fact. This famous actor, Alan Cumming, the Scottish actor, and his family had always believed that his maternal grandfather, Thomas Darling, had been killed in a shooting accident. The family were led to believe that he was once cleaning his rifle, he shot gun, and while he was cleaning it, inadvertently, he shot himself and killed himself in the process. However, during the program, he discovered, in fact, uh, Thomas Darling was playing Russian roulette. And so the wound inflicted wasn't exactly accidental, but rather stupid. Leslie Garrett, who's entertained many of us with a beautiful, wonderful vo voice, as she began to research, plenty of um, skeletons began tumbling out of her cupboard, and the most shocking set of bones that came out of that cupboard was to discover that her great-great-grandfather, a well-respected man who served as local councillor, um, had actually been accused of killing her great-great-grandmother by his son and by his daughter-in-law. Apparently, he'd replaced her uh, medication inadvertently with carbolic acid. But, however, even how strange that may seem, and not a thing I'd recommend doing with any of your spouses, it was actually ruled by the coroner as a case of accidental death. Well, not everyone agreed with that verdict. And then, being totally non-controversial, there's this character. Boris, good old Boris. And Boris discovered that not only he had royal roots to accompany his blonde roots, but he discovered he had so many connections to royalty around the royal houses of Europe. He discovered that Boris's paternal grandmother, Yvonne Eileen Williams, was a descendant of this gentleman, Prince Paul von Wattenberg of Germany. And that also he was a great uh, descendant of this man here, George II. I think there's quite a lot of likeness. I generally didn't think so. I, I, I thought there was likeness between George II and Boris in some respects. No? I, I, I see them, but perhaps you don't. But, um, but, um, but actually, they also discovered um, that, 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 that George II being, his, being a descendant makes the 18th century bo a king Boris's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. Put simply, he, he's related not only to the Queen Elizabeth, but also to the Swedish and Dutch royal families, as well as the former Russian imperial dynasty of the Romanos. So he's a man with many um, royal connections. But actually, as the program developed, you discovered that that doesn't really mean much, because anyone can be related to a royal these days. Because then we came to Danny Dyer, the East Ender actor, the diamond geezer extraordinaire. We discovered that uh, he was quite shocked to discover that he was descended from this man here, William the Conqueror, and also from this man here, sorry, this man here, who is Edward III. I also discovered he's also related to this, uh, 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 sorry, um, Henry VIII's advisor, Thomas Cromwell. So he's got a lot of royal roots into him. So being posh doesn't mean you speak like a posh person. You can speak like Danny Dyer and be a diamond geezer. And I wonder what we would discover if we were to investigate our own family lines and begin to trail through history and dig into the dirt. 
what we discover about us, who our ancestors were. And this is exactly what's happening in the context of Luke's gospel. Because what Luke's here is doing is to try and establish Jesus' credibility among the, among the um, Greek people. He's trying to establish just who Jesus is. But before he actually gets to the genealogy, he begins to describe the start of Jesus' ministry, which is really critical, the way this comes in this passage. You'd expect almost the genealogy to come first, and then the baptism to come second. There's no reason, except that's the way he's constructed it. He's done it for a very important reason. So the first thing that he wants to talk about, Luke, is this, the son's submersion. The son's submersion. See, one of the great questions of the New Testament is this, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? We're told that John's baptism was one of repentance. Luke makes this very clear when he writes this. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So why is Jesus being baptized? When it's a baptism of repentance, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Wasn't Jesus sinless? What was he repenting of? This is absolutely true. Jesus did not need to get baptized to wash away his sins, for he had none to be washed away. The Bible is very clear about this. The Bible says Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. We see this in the very next account in this gospel. This story goes on in chapter 4 and talks about Jesus being tempted. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Trust me, all your temptations do not meet, come anywhere close to being tempted by the devil personally for 40 days. And yet Jesus did not give in to the temptations that were put thrust in front of him. We're told in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel that Jesus was tempted. And so we have this wonderful declaration in Hebrews. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Sometimes Christians say, well, temptation is too much. Oscar Wilde famously said, I can resist anything except temptation. And yet, Jesus did resist temptation. And if we fail due to temptation, we can't simply say, oh, it's unfair, I just can't cope. Because as Christians, you can cope because you have a high priest who has coped. And his spirit lives in you. We have a, a Lord who's been tempted in every way. He understands when you pray to Jesus. He understands because he's been there and worse than where you've been. Far worse when where you can ever be. He was tempted and yet he never sinned. So it's declared for us, John says, he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. If there was sin in him, he couldn't take our sins. He couldn't die on our behalf if he was a sinful human being like we are. He was tempted and yet remained sinless. The Apostle Paul writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
We come before him because not just the waters of baptism have washed away our sins, but because his blood has washed away our sins. We are cleansed by Jesus Christ. And Luke begins talking about the son's submersion because he's making the point that the ministry of Jesus was the ministry of Jesus following the will of God the Father. Jesus was not doing what he wanted to do. He was not following his own way. He wasn't on some whim. He was following the decrees and the route laid out before him by his Father God. So an interesting verse that's explained to us why um, his baptism goes first. It's this verse here that begins the genealogy when Luke says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Luke is the only gospel writer who tells us that Jesus was 30 years old. And it fits perfectly in terms of the story we got earlier on of this being around the time of um, Caesar um, of Quirinius and the time of Pontius Pilate and the time of Annas, the, the high priest, and Caiaphas, the high priest, early on in that chapter. He's telling us exactly that Jesus was 30 years old. And this was the starting point of his ministry. And Jesus began his ministry in a point of submission, in a point of Submersion. What's interesting, the Bible tells us that you couldn't become a priest until you were 30. The age of priesthood was 30 to 50. 30 was a very significant age in the Jewish culture. So we read, for example, that David was 30 years old when he became king in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And then we read this, that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh of Egypt in Genesis 41. 30 is a key age. If any of you here tonight, today are 30 years old, pray about where you are because that's a key age in your life. What is God wanting you to do in your life? What ministry, what way does God want you to bless other people through your life, through your profession, through what you're doing? 30 years is a key period. And it's important to remember this because the last time we read about Jesus was also only recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. And that's the time that Jesus appears in the temple at the age of 12. And he's talking and debating with the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and they're amazed at his knowledge. That happens a few verses earlier in this chapter. And then we have 18 years of silence. We don't know what Jesus has done in those 18 years. And suddenly he comes upon the scene of the Bible and he begins his ministry at 30 years old with baptism. He submerges his will to the will of the Father. You see, my vision for the church is that we may understand what this means. That we may understand that ministry has to start with submersion. It has to start with submitting our will to his will. It's not about us. It's about him. Jesus began his ministry by saying to God, not my will, but yours be done. And he went through the waters of baptism, not because he was a sinner, but because he was an obedient son and was identifying with our sinfulness by going through those waters. That's what the baptism of Jesus is about. Is identifying with you and for me. And if we want to see change in this church and change in this town and change in this county and change in this country, it has to start with me, with you.
It always starts with me. You can't change someone else. Speak to Fiona, my wife. She's been married to me for many, many years. She's tried, but she realizes I'm a human being. I'm stubborn. The person who changes me is God, but I've got to want to change. You can bleat at people. You can nag at people. You can shout at people, but unless that person wants to change, nothing will happen. That's why Jesus often, when he went to heal people, said something bizarre. He said to people, do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? Because even the power of God cannot heal someone who does not want to be healed. If we want to grow in Christ, you've got to say, yes, Father, more of you, less of me. It's got to start with me. Number one, me street, ego place, hubris city, all for me. That's got to change. It's got to become this. Number, number one, Jesus walk. God's place. For some reason it's not working. Submission city. All for him. Change starts with me. It starts with you. It's no good praying the prayer, Father God, change my church and change her. Change my church and change him. When God says, and what about you? What about you? Where are you in this change? Don't you want to take me seriously? Don't you want to have more of me in your life? Don't you want to be blessed and be blessing others as I flow from you as a river into this dry desert and wilderness? Jesus begins his ministry not by declaring that he's great and he's good, not by saying, I'm sinless. He starts his ministry by going down into a dirty river called the Jordan in the desert and being baptized with all the other sinners, identifying with you, identifying with me. His ministry was not one of suppression, it was one of submersion. His ministry was one of meekness. His ministry was one of saying, your will, Father God, and not mine. He was obedient. And that's why John the Baptist when he sees him, says this. When he saw him passing away, he says, look, the Lamb of God. Not the Lion of God at this stage. Not the roar of the Lion, but the bleats of the Lamb. The one who would die sacrificially for you and for me. Jesus is the one who says yes to God and no to self. He laid his life upon the altar. Will you lay your life upon the altar? Will you allow God to change you? Will you begin this new period in this church by submission? Or will you simply say, no, my will be done? We see in this passage the, the son's submersion, and then we see the father's salute. Because we're told in verse 21, as he was praying, the heavens were opened. What an incredible thing this is. Here is Jesus submitted to the Father's will. He comes out of the water. He begins to pray. And in the moment he begins to pray, heaven is opened. The very thing that Jesus has come to do, be our great high priest, the one who goes beyond the temple, who sacrifices his life, suddenly just through the prayer and the act of that submission, heaven is opened. And for a moment, the people there are given a glimpse of heaven itself. And we're told a voice from heaven came and said this, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
With you, I am well pleased. John, very early on, led us beautifully through the Lord's Prayer. And that prayer, every time we pray it, and we should pray it daily, says this, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Often when people pray that, they think of the kingdom in terms of the vastness of God's kingdom, and they forget that they're part of the kingdom. When we pray that prayer, we're saying, your will be done, not only in heaven, but in me. Me. That's where the kingdom of God starts for us. In me. And so Jesus begins his mission by this submission of his will to the will of the Father. And God says, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. Later on, Jesus would pray this prayer. He would say, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, submission is vital for God to work because God knows better than us. If Jesus hadn't died for us, we would not be forgiven. We would not be here. These last 2,000 years would not have occurred. There wouldn't have been the, the era of the church because the church would not exist because we would still be basically unrepentant people. And even if we did try to repent, there was no one to actually pay the price for us because only one person could pay the price for us and that was Jesus and it required him to say that not my will but yours be done. Blessing results when we submit to the will of the Father because he knows best. And that's the work of not only Jesus, that's the work of us as his followers to not only follow his examples by going through the waters of baptism, the waters of repentance, but also by following his way of submission and saying, Father God, your will be done in my life. When there's friction between our will and God's will, it's got to be his will that's done. Because if we don't allow God's will to be done, God's blessing will not follow. Because we'll be living a life of rebellion against the will of the Father. It's saying, your will be done. When we say your will be done, like Jesus says your will be done, then God says of his son, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Submission is the starting point of the ministry of Jesus. And it's the starting point of every ministry when we're following the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus submitted his will and when God declares his ownership of the Son, when heaven is opened, God said, this is my Son, and not just this is my Son, but this is my beloved Son. This is my honored Son. This is the one I love, in whom my love rests upon and within. He's my special Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus began his ministry in the right and proper place of submission. And God knew that he would carry it through to the cross. But every moment, because temptation is real, because Jesus' humanity was real, there had to be an element of doubt. But Jesus has began rightly, and God was pleased and blessed him because he began his ministry the right way, through a ministry of submission. What's interesting is the, the words of God from the heavens actually taken from two psalms. The first part of, of is Psalm 2 verse 7, You are my son, today I have become your father. That's one of the many messianic psalms in, in, the, in the book of Psalms itself. 
And even that psalm itself talks about the son, the, the Messiah being rejected and eventually the triumph of the Messiah in Psalm chapter 2. And then the second part of the, of the voice from heaven is quoted in Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. And this, in part of Isaiah, leads on eventually to the whole narrative of the suffering servant in Isaiah, pointing to the cross. Isaiah is full of references to Jesus dying on the cross and the Messiah suffering as a servant. And so Jesus, who was so familiar that he could lecture religious intellectuals at the age of 12, so familiar with the Old Testament, will have known that these references to Psalm 2 and Psalm 42 were taking him towards a cross. He would know that he was fulfilling the role of the Messiah and the suffering servant. And he still carried on that way. And the voice from heaven reminds me of an old soldier saluting those going to war. God is saluting his son as he marches towards the cross. Because it wasn't just baptism he was going to go through. The physical waters of baptism. He was going to climb a hill called Golgotha, carrying a cross. Not because he was a sinful man, but because he was standing in the place of sinful people, you and me. That's the nature of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's only at this point having described the son's submission, having described the saviours, the, the father's salute, that Luke eventually closes with the Messiah's stock and looks at the history that led up to this point and led up to this son. And this is a very important way that he's done this because genealogies were very important to the Jews and they're important to all the nations of the ancient world. But remember, there's no internet in those days. There was no BBC. You could have programs about you know, who you were. And people used to carry around their personal genealogies. And these were really important. Some of the great libraries of the ancient world had the genealogies of the most famous people, in, in, either in, in, in um, cuneiform tablets of, of uh, clay or, in fact, written down on papyrus. But what's interesting here is this genealogy of Jesus is very different. Because it differs from Matthew's. Look at Matthew's. Here, Matthew 1 verse 6. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's not the way that Luke begins. Luke says this. He was a son, so it was fault of Joseph, the son of Heli. And some people have used this to say, oh, you know, it describes the, the, um, you know, the conflicts in the Bible between Luke and, and between Matthew, you know, and it just shows the contradictions, the lies. It's not true at all. You've got, that's a very easy kind of answer to say. You've got to dig deeper. And you've got to understand that when Matthew's writing, he's writing for Jews. Matthew was a tax letter, and all these gospels is writing to declare Jesus as the Messiah. It's written as a Jewish gospel, if you like. Luke is writing as a Greek, as a doctor. He's writing a Greek doctor. And early on, Luke has already said that Jesus was born of a virgin. And therefore, his father, so it was thought of Joseph, had nothing to do with the conception. So why would he be in the genealogical line? For a Jew, it's important legally. But in terms of Matthew's talking to philosophical Greeks, it has no logic behind it. And so he's making the point. But in fact, what he has here, the genealogy that Luke is using, is not the genealogy of Joseph, it's the genealogy of Mary. And Heli was in fact the father-in-law of Joseph. And he's pointing, taking the, the tree, taking the line of the tree back through Mary because we know that Mary was the literal, physical mother of Jesus. 
And therefore it makes sense for Luke to do this. He's writing to demonstrate that Jesus is the son of God. But notice what he says there. So it was fault of Joseph. But no, says Luke. He was in fact the physical son of his grandfather, Eli. And so what's interesting also is that in his genealogy, I tried to emphasize it when I read it, is that he tries to make various points. First of all, that Jesus is a son of David. And that was critical to show he was the Messiah. He had to come from the royal line. And also he was a son of Abraham, the son of Terah. And that was critical because the great patriarch was the father of the Jewish people. But only Luke goes beyond Abraham. You may have noticed it. He talks about Noah in verse 36. He talks about Enoch in verse 38. And also in verse 38, he comes to the son of Adam, the son of God. What's Luke doing? Luke is doing this. He's pointing out that Jesus is not just the son of the Jewish people. He's not just the son of Abraham. In in Matthew's account, it stops at Abraham. In Luke's account, it goes all the way back to Abraham because Abraham was the first man, the son of God. In other words, he's saying that this Messiah is the Messiah not just of the Jewish people. He is the Messiah of the whole world, of you and me, of you and me. He brooks no... He doesn't honor one race above another. He is the son of God for all people, of all colors, of all cultures, of all genders. He is the son of God, the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ for you and for me. And so he begins to make the link between Jesus being the second Adam with one who follows on from the first Adam. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. He comes to make all alive. And this wonderful passage at the end of that chapter by Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, so it's written, the first man, Adam, became a life-living spirit. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. Why does the baptism precede the genealogy of Jesus? Luke's a doctor. He's a clever man. He is writing us, he's giving you the account here and setting the scene perfectly. Why? Because Jesus didn't just begin his ministry at the age 30. He begins his ministry by being baptized. And what follows his baptism? This. As he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Jesus began his ministry in the power of God and in God's spirit. And if we are to minister effectively in this town, you and I cannot do it in a spirit of coal, in the spirit of Mike, in the spirit of anyone else, you can only do it in the spirit of God. People, I want you to really think seriously about how close you are to God. What really frustrates me so much as a minister is the way people are so terrified of God and so terrified of the Holy Spirit. How did the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus? Was it a pterodactyl? Was it some holy, fiery angel, blazing lightning? No. No. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus as a dove, as a symbol of God's peace and God's blessing. When you're terrified of God's presence, trust me, that's not God speaking to you. That's Satan speaking to you. Satan does not want, his, does not want to see the church empowered in the Spirit of God because that terrifies Satan. Because he knows, as long as we remain weak Christians, not connected to the Holy Spirit, we will never achieve the purposes of the gospel. 
He needs people who are filled not with themselves, not with their wills, but filled with God's will and God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just called the Holy Spirit. It's called the Spirit of Christ in the New Testament. It's called the Spirit of God. And Jesus, we're told in that, ver- in that verse in 1 Corinthians 15, is a life-giving Spirit. He came to empower his people, to make a difference, and you can only make a difference if you work in the power of God's Spirit. By taking seriously your prayer life, by reading your Bible every day, by asking God every morning when you wake up, Father God, fill me with your Spirit. Lead me to people to speak to this week. Help me to speak about you. Give me the confidence. Give me the faith. Give me the courage. I lack it, but you have it. Fill me with your spirit. You won't grow two heads. You won't suddenly become some kind of terrifying pyrotechnic who wander around with a flame above your heads and every fireman in Colchester will be trying to put you out. It doesn't happen like that. Jesus is the, is the man, the, 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 the son of God who comes to the common person. He is a love who comes to bring peace and purpose and power in our lives. In this passage, we see the son's submersion. He's giving into the will of God, and the father saluting the son's beginning of his ministry. And we see the Messiah's stock. This is a passage at the start of a new period, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're in a new period in this church's life. And the question I have for you, are you submersing your will to the will of the Father? Because only when you do that will you receive the Father's salute and you become part of that mighty and wonderful genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because God is still building his church and we are part of the history of the church. Let's make that history glorious by following his glorious Son. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn. Go forth and tell.